0: Over the course of the next two weeks, we will have 13 baby dedications. You heard that correctly, 13 baby dedications. I think we're doing six of them today. So that whole be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth is still being taken very seriously here at Crosspoint, and we are uh, having a lot of baby dedications because of it this week and next week. Given our context of the baby dedications and the fact that we've been in Ephesians 4, I thought it would be fitting to stop down for one Sunday, this Sunday in particular, and just consider further uh, something that was revealed in the verses we considered last week. So turn to Ephesians 4, if you're not already there. And in 4.14, it says this. There's this picture that leads up to it. I'll give you a little context of um, gifts in the form of people have been given to the church to do the ministry of the word. And that ministry of the word is something that blesses the church, and it, and it and even the words are perfects and makes complete the church through that ministry. And it says in verse 14, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, and by craftiness and deceitful schemes." The warning last week was the adults shouldn't be children. It's okay for the children to be children, but it's not okay for the adults to be children. We should not be tossed to and fro and carried about. But there's a truth that's revealed in that verse that's fitting for us as it is a baby dedication Sunday. And the truth is this. Doctrine, that which is taught, that's what doctrine is, just what is taught, has a significant impact on children. Particularly in this verse... Children are tossed to and fro by the wind and waves of bad doctrine through human cunning and craftiness and deceitful schemes. I'm going to say that again because that's kind of the thesis or the principle that we're working from this morning from Ephesians 4 is this reality for children in our world because as adults, it's a reality that we should be aware of. And it's this, children are tossed to and fro and carried about With every wind of doctrine, through human cunning and craftiness and deceitful schemes. Bad doctrine affects our children greatly, and the adults are supposed to know that. The King James Version, I don't read from it a lot, but I'm going to read from it this morning because I thought that the the, uh, translation was powerful. It says, that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness. Whereby they lie in wait to deceive. Our children are not deceived on accident. You might think, well, it's baby dedication. You're getting kind of heavy, kind of quick, aren't you? Yes, I am. Our children are not deceived on accident. The enemy lies in wait. We know that the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, and the most vulnerable among us are the weakest. That's a theme that's seen throughout all the pastoral epistles. Those who are the most weak are the most vulnerable. The enemy lies in wait. It's not so evident at first glance in this particular uh, piece of scripture, but when you look more closely at the words, the words described here, describe what our children, describing what our children face, are words of strategic, professional-level deceit. That's what's being brought up here. Not just that you know our children are in the world and sometimes they hear some bad things and so we just got to hope that it doesn't have an effect on them. No, no, no. It's not near that neutral. It's not near that passive. These words, this, this um, human cunning, this craftiness in deceitful schemes points to what I want to call this morning a strategic, professional level deceit. These words indicate trickery and a highly discerning ability to work out unscrupulous conduct successfully. It's a cleverness that is aimed at our children, a cleverness at achieving one's aim by indirect and deceitful methods. It's not just saying what isn't true, but it's saying what isn't true in a way that makes it sound true. Indirect, clever, winsome even, are these this aim that is taken at the most vulnerable among us. Not just saying what isn't true, but saying it in a way that makes it sound true. That is what our children are relentlessly on the receiving end of in our culture today. That word tossed indicates billowing. Billowing like smoke or billowing like clouds, like a storm. A billowing onslaught of seemingly true things that make the most vulnerable among us unsettled in heart and mind. Unstable full of fear. I was trying to think of something that illustrates this kind of deceit, this kind of professional level trickery, and I actually stumbled upon it right when I was in the middle of it. Now, if you're listening right now, you might be thinking, what kind of nefarious activity are you taking part in, pastor? I was in the middle of Strategic professional level deceit when I realized this would be a great sermon illustration. I wasn't robbing a bank or anything like that, I was hunting. Hunting. Now, before I lean into this illustration, uh, my wife warned me that this may not be the best idea. So I want her off the hook before we even go any further this morning, she was like, okay, hold on, uh, parents, grandparents, potentially aunts, uncles are here for this baby dedication, and the image you're going to leave them with is that their little children are being hunted by bad, nefarious, professional-level deceivers. I said, yes, yes, that's exactly right. So, um, so uh, I'll let you decide if you think the illustration is fitting or, or over the top. So I took my son turkey hunting when I realized that we were doing exactly what is being modeled here in Ephesians 4. What I mean is this. You can't show up in the middle of a field in khakis and a button-up with a pocket knife and expect that you're going to get a turkey. That's not how it works. I don't know if many of you have ever been turkey hunting, but that's not you don't just show up with something sharp and like, all right, well, let's get the turkey, all right? All right, this, where are they? Where are the turkeys? That's not how it works. There's much, much more that goes into it. First, you've got to consider where. When people are hunting deer or turkey or anything, you can get aerial photos of the land and see where the creeks are and see where the most likely places are where animals will be gathering. And then I have an app on my phone that allows me to see the feeding cycles of what times of day are the most fitting to get out there and get some turkey dinner. So you can't just show up whenever you got to show up at the right time and in the right place. And then how you show up matters. Like I said, you can't just wear khakis and a button-up with a pocket knife and think that that's somehow going to be an effective turkey hunt. You want to blend in. You don't want the turkeys to think that there's something wrong going on (laughs) at all. You want to blend in, so you wear camo. You want to look like leaves and trees and branches because leaves and trees and branches don't freak turkeys out. So you want to look the part. You get out there quietly. You got to have the right tools. For me, a 12-gauge shotgun, three-inch turkey shot number four in there, it'll get it done. And then once you get out there, you're quiet. You don't want to make anyone upset. Then you put out your decoys, fake turkeys on a stick that blow in the wind and bring these other turkeys in. Once all that's in place, the final step is finding a language that appeals to the turkey. Some of you really good turkey hunters might be like, that was terrible. (laughs) You'll never get a turkey with that kind of a call. But you sit down. What you do is you sit down, and sometimes for hours, you and another guy over there just sitting there... Just looking, waiting to see if there's any takers. What I just did means, hey there, lover boy, are you looking for someone to settle down with? <laughs> then you keep going, maybe we get some coffee and talk about it, you know, what are your life goals, all that kind of stuff. But you, you have this thing, and there's other calls too, there's a, whole, there's a whole market for these things. No one at camp had the same one. Where you are trying to speak a language that appeals to the turkey, what you do is you speak that language, and then some of them, every now and again, you're, you're sitting there, and you're, and then you hear a response, and that's when the hunter freaks out. You hear a response, gobble, gobble, gobble. That was a turkey. <laughs> and so then you get creative, and you kind of, you kind of do some different calls, a little, maybe a little purr to try to bring him in, whatever, and you get creative, and you try to bring him in, and usually they come in in groups. There's always one or two that are a little more curious than everybody else. And Just as soon as they get close enough, remember, this isn't a wellness checkup, right? This is, I'm looking for dinner. And just as soon as they get close enough, boom, turkey down, winner, winner, turkey dinner, right? That's the goal. That, that's what we're doing. We want to get them in. We don't want to freak them out. We want them to think everything's fine. We're, we're, we belong here. There's nothing to be scared of here up until that last moment. I realized right as we were doing that, that, you know, I tell my son, um, you know, we're, we're truth speakers and we speak the truth and we walk in the truth and we stand firm in the truth except for when we're hunting and we're complete liars. We're, we're strategic, professional-level deceivers. We have purchased decoys. We have, the decoys are fake. The, ca- the, the decoys are fake turkeys. The camo is fake trees. The call is fake turkey language. Um, everything is fake. So we are truth speakers except for when we're hunting and then we're just utter liars and just unabashedly we're going to move forward in the deceit at a professional, clever level. I was kind of convicted yesterday. As we did that, it's like, wow, we're a bunch of liars sitting here. We kind of joked. You know, anytime time a turkey gets shot, they, they freak out and they scatter and, and all of a sudden they disappear. They don't hang around to see if it's going to happen again. We consider the turkey friends and family back home that night, saying, man, can you believe what happened to Tom? It's probably his name, right? That came out of nowhere. Here we were. We saw these two really oddly still turkey buddies, and we, we moseyed up to them. And then we were here in Turkey Calling, and then all of a sudden, boom! Tom is gone. That came out of nowhere. But the hunters would never say that, right? They'd only get back to their camp and say, "Did you see me shoot that turkey? That came out of nowhere. I just was sitting there, happened to have a shotgun." Turkey walks right up to me. That never happens. The hunters would never say that. Why? Because so much clever deceit and lying, frankly, went into the situation. But the turkeys didn't know about it. But the hunters were like, man, it worked. We were clever. We drew them in, and we won a turkey dinner. So turning from a fairly ridiculous illustration to something a little more serious, my question is this. How many times have we heard of a young person who's made a horrible decision, who's done what seems to be a 180, who's maybe renounced their faith, or maybe they've joined up with a community that only affirms one another, or maybe they've welcomed some level of wickedness in their lives by simply calling it another name, or maybe even they've decided to change their their identity or change their gender, because apparently that's an option for everyone in our community. And family and friends sometimes sit around and say, Man, did you hear about so-and-so? That came out of nowhere. But it didn't. It didn't come out of nowhere. That's what we see in Ephesians 4 here. It didn't come out of left field. It didn't come out of nowhere. It came from the billowing, relentless onslaught of false doctrine delivered by clever, professional-level deceivers who were winsome, who wanted to make them feel like there's nothing wrong here. Up until the moment they win them over to something that is false, away from God, away from the affections of God and affections somewhere else. It didn't just come out of nowhere. A lot goes into this scheming that is talked about, this human cunning, this craftiness in deceitful schemes that are mentioned in this verse. So the question I have is, we heard the turkey language so marvelously uh, shared with you this morning. What might be some of the language that our children hear that is appealing What might be some of the language that our children hear, that that they'll hear it in a clever way from a winsome person, obviously, and they hear it and it's, it's not true, but it's presented in a way that sounds really true. What might be some of the language that our children are hearing that would draw them away from the Lord? In 2016, just 10 months ago... The president, Barna's president, Barna is an organization that does a lot of research and has a lot of, um, they'll, they'll do statements and see who agrees with the statement, who disagrees with the statement, and he contends that research indicates that a new brand of morality has evolved in America. He insists that Christianity has for the most part been removed as the culture's moral norm and replaced with a new moral code, which he says has six important points. And so if we look at these six important points, why would we look at a moral code? Well, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So if these are the main points of the new moral code in our country, um, then we can learn a lot about the kind of deceit that's being given to our children through these six details. So detail number one is this. The best way of finding yourself is by looking within yourself. 91% of the American culture outside of the church agrees that the best way of finding yourself it's by looking within yourself. Interestingly, that the, Interesting that the first one right out the gate attacks identity. And it's void of anything having to do with God. If you want to find yourself, just look down deep inside, 91%. Now you might be thinking, 91%, but that's, that's those pagans outside of the church, right? That's those wayward ones. That's those who, who don't know God. Inside of the church, the number is 76%. Do you hear that? Those who have a church home, a Christian church home in our country, 76% over three-fourths would say the best way to find yourself is by looking down within yourself. The second one is that people should not criticize someone else's life choices. That is part of the moral code of our country. And those outside of the church, 89% agree with it. And inside of the church, 76%, more than three-fourths would say people should not criticize someone else's life choices. I mean, I hope you're sitting there thinking, what about being created in the image of God? What about being our brother's keeper? What about accountability? Because that's what you should be thinking as believers, but apparently over three-fourths aren't. Number three is that to be fulfilled in life, you should pursue the things you desire most. Well, of course, if I find me by looking down inside of me and I make my decisions accordingly, the point of my life must be to to pursue whatever... I want me, me, me. 86% outside of the church give it a thumbs up, and a whopping 72% say, yeah, that's great, inside the church. Number four, the highest goal of life is just to enjoy it as much as possible. There's nothing wrong with enjoying life, but you enjoy it in Christ. Nothing is said here about the glory of God and our created purpose to model that who we were created in the image of. But 84% outside of the church give it a thumbs up, and yet again, 67% inside the church give it a thumbs up. The fifth point is people can believe whatever they want as long as those beliefs don't affect society. 79% outside of the church, 61% inside of the church, and number six, as you might expect, any kind of sexual expression between two consenting adults is totally acceptable. 69% thumbs up outside of the church, 40% inside the church, almost half, say, yeah, that's fine. It would appear that the problem isn't only out there. It would appear that there's false teaching that's made its way in to our churches in our time the same way it did from every church that ever existed from the beginning of the New Testament church almost over 2,000 years ago. Over and over again in the pastoral epistles, stand firm in the truth. Watch out for the false teachers. They're deceivers. They'll be in among you, and you won't even know they're there because they're wearing camo. And they sound like you, and they talk like you. But then they begin to present things that are untrue in a way that makes it sound true. It is a problem in the church. It is a problem that believers are supposed to stand firmly against. Getting back to Ephesians 4, this is the wind of bad doctrine that creates waves for our children and waves for our young adults. These are the billows of wind that make waves for our children, resulting in instability and confusion. We want to confuse you about your identity. We want to confuse you about where you came from. We want to confuse you about the point of life. We're going to do it in a way that makes it sound okay. It creates a world where our children have confusion when it comes to identity. Which affects their friendships. I asked my 11-year-old, I didn't ask her if I could share this, but I thought it was a wise answer on her part. I said, what's the hardest part about being 11? I asked her this week. She said, choosing the right thing to do and knowing who the right friends are to choose. And the reason that's hard for her is the same reason it's hard for you. I mean, in our country, you're born into a system where politically you choose one side and you're vilified by the other side. It's the same way with friendships and with kids. You choose this set of friends and you're kind of vilified by this set of friends because you're not over here because you've got to be a part over here. And it's dizzying because a lot of kids who are vulnerable and have that childlike faith which is so wonderful, they say, why can't I be friends with more people? Well, because there's a, there's a message being presented that's divisive, that thrives on conflict, not resolving conflict, just creating more and more and more of it. So there's confusion in friendships, there's confusion in, in how you speak, there's confusion in what you laugh at. There's confusion in things that used to be so solid, things like gender. On top of that, I was talking to the staff, trying to say, you know, what are y'all's kids, what are some of the things that first come to mind when you think about just this billowing false message that, that our kids are struggling with, that we have to regularly shepherd them for, through, and the, the realization came that everything is urgent, When you have that kind of a message, you get what you want when you want it. Everything is urgent, and there's no delayed gratification. In this world, disagreeing is incriminating. They'll not tolerate your intolerance. Identity is attacked. The deep desire for affirmation results in a distaste and even disdain for discipline and correction. Can I talk to you about what you're doing? No, you cannot. I got mine. I know what I want, and I don't need to hear from you can I affirm you? Well, sure. Absolutely. Here's my Facebook page. Here's my Instagram account. Here's everything else. Affirm, affirm, like, 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 but no discipline. There's a distaste and disdain for that. Can you hear the roar of the wind? That's the reality for our children. It's way different now than it even was 10 years ago when it was different then than it was the 10 years before. The stuff you dealt with as a child, I mean, I was talking to someone this week, they're like, man, as a kid, I remember having to think like, like, do I hang out with the jocks or the rednecks? Or do I wear this or that to school? Not do I want to be this or that. It's dizzying. And it's dizzying on purpose. The instability that is being created there is very intentional and it is being done very, very cleverly. Can you hear the roar of the wind? Can you feel the unstable footing of being on a boat where waves crash like billows, relentless, dizzying, fear-inducing? What is happening? I don't understand my current reality here because I can't even tell um, truth from fiction. As we soberly consider the trials that await our children, I do want to be careful this morning. If I stopped there, this certainly wouldn't be the most encouraging baby dedication service you've been a part of. Let us be sure not to lose sight of our Lord. Our Lord, who cares more about your own children than you can ever even comprehend. Our Lord, who is perfect in every way, as is his love. Turn over to Matthew 18. We just got a couple little satellites but we're going to consider this morning. Matthew 18 is the first one. Verses 1 through 5 say this. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Apparently they were struggling with identity as well. And calling to him a child... He put him in the midst of them and said, Truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now, I want to clear something up because you might be thinking, Well, I thought the children were unstable. Why is he saying we've got to be like children? Their childlike faith is commendable. When it says have faith like a child, what it's saying is, when they hear, Oh, that's true, then they say, That's what I believe. There's a vulnerability that helps them to grab onto truth, but the problem is they hear what's true, but then they hear what's not true. Then they hear what's only partially true, so it's untrue. And they get this onslaught of things, and the children are in their vulnerabilities because they don't have years of firm foundation. Say, okay, I believe that. No, No, I believe that. No, I believe that. So he's saying, for those who hear the truth and just believe it, well, if that's what's true, that's what I believe. That is commendable. You should humble yourself like that child and quit arguing with the truth. But look what Jesus says in verse 5. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. There's a pretty high priority put on receiving children. Allowing them in. Giving them your time. Giving them words of wisdom. Giving them truth. You receive them. Jesus says, you receive me. And he goes on to say this. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin... It would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. This is what our God thinks about these skillful and clever deceivers. A millstone is literally a thousands of pound piece of rock that was used in mills to to crush things. And they're saying, put that, not not like a hundred pound rock, like thousands of pounds. It'd be better for those people, those skillful deceivers, those clever people who say untrue things in ways that make it sound true. Here's what I think about them. I, the Lord, think it would be better for them to have that big stone put around their neck and drown in the sea. Why? Why does God think that? Because his love for his children who believe in him is perfect and complete and lacking in nothing. The battle is not just for your children's attention. It's for their affections. The love of God is so profound and so perfect that the world wants to draw them away from that and say, no, you need this over here. No, no, no. It's not love if you can't make that choice. You come over here. You, you can make your choice over here. And it's a battle for their affections, not just for their attention. The love that God has for his children cannot be improved upon. There was never a day where God's love was greater than the previous day or where it's going to be greater tomorrow than it was today. It's always perfect. This is the same God who says, let the little children come to me, the same God who is a father to the fatherless, who urges us not to hide but to tell the coming generation his great deeds because he cares for them before they're even born. The way the Psalms play out show that God cares for generations that are yet to come. When they get here... Tell them my great deeds and tell them my commands. He calls children a heritage. He calls children a reward. He says that they're like arrows in the hand of a skilled warrior blessing the family. Pure and undefiled religion is looking after widows and orphans, the most vulnerable among us. If you think that it is not important to watch after the most vulnerable among us, you do not understand the love of our great God. Children are a blessing. And here at Crosspoint, we have many of them. It does not matter if you are single and don't have kids. It does not matter if you are married and don't have kids. These children are your children. If I have five, you have five. And because of that, you are very blessed. we got to see that this morning. As we're talking about this baby dedication... We talk about the things that our children are facing these children are a blessing they're a benefit they're pleasing to the lord the lord loves them in a way that isn't lacking in any way and he models that for us so you are very blessed here because there are lots of children here and you have a great responsibility that's kind of what a baby dedication sunday is all about First, understanding the situation, trying to bring clarity to the situation that can sometimes just be dizzying and confusing, and then understanding what we do. All of this wind and wave imagery that we hear in Ephesians 4 sounds a lot like Matthew 8. Turn over to Matthew 8. Just a few pages before where you are currently. You know, Paul was writing this letter to the church in Ephesus, and he was a guy who was shipwrecked and had been on many unstable ships, and you would, you would think for sure that the, the illustration that he chose was because it was personal. So when Paul thinks about how unstable those ships can be, he's thinking, man, that's how it is for children. That's how it is when they get this onslaught of this just strategic professional level deceit. And then the language sounds, the wind and the waves and the fear, sounds a lot like Matthew 8, verse 23. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by waves. A billowing of waves swamping the boat. But he was asleep. And they went and woke him up, saying, Save us, Lord! We are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose, and look at what Jesus does in this moment that his children are freaking out, full of fear. He rose and rebuked the wind and the sea. And there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this that even the winds and sea obey him? When Jesus' children are freaking out about the waves and they're full of fear, he doesn't join with them. He didn't wake up from his nap and be like, Oh, I'm asleep. Storm, what? What? What's going on? We're going to die. That's not what Jesus did. When his children were dysregulated, he didn't dysregulate with them. When they were full of fear, he didn't just join in and be full of fear with them. When they were asking questions with no answers, he didn't just ask more questions with, more, with no answers. He rebuked the wind. There is no way for the waves to be calm if the wind is not rebuked. So he rebukes the wind and sets an example for us. How do we as a church and how do we as parents... Rebuke the wind for our children because the waves will continue to incessantly crash on their little boats if we don't learn how to rebuke the wind. In Ephesians 6, 1-4, you don't have to turn there because we're going to turn to the verse that that comes from. Ephesians 6, 1-4 tells parents to bring up children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. I mean, if you go back to the moral code of our country, well, they're not going to like discipline. So what do we do? You bring them up. And the discipline and the instruction of the Lord without provoking them to anger. This call to these Ephesian parents is a call that comes directly from Deuteronomy 6. Turn over to Deuteronomy 6. It's the last place I'm going to have you turn this morning. We're trying to answer the question how do we as a church and as parents rebuke the wind for the stability of our children? Deuteronomy 6, this is a very important verse that almost all the Jewish families would have inevitably had memorized, even at the earliest ages. And verse 4 says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. And then it says, you shall teach them diligently to your children. Sometimes we don't understand why things should be handled diligently until we understand what the opposition is. I remember I had a job where I was being trained on a forklift. You have to be very, very careful, Mr. Scott. Don't do... (laughs) keep the forks down when you're driving around. Don't drive around with the forks up. Be, you be diligent. Do not drive around with the forks up. I'm like, it's a forklift. I don't just drive around. I'm just going to pick stuff up. Calm down. Well, then I had the forks up because I wasn't being diligent and I, I ran them right through a pallet of pure ammonia Now, that is not the kind of thing that people like to just breathe in regularly. And I made a huge mess. And um, I wasn't allowed on the forklift for a little while after that. (laughs) But the point is, they told me to be diligent about something. And I wasn't diligent because I didn't understand the threats. When we read in Deuteronomy 6, you shall teach them diligently. Maybe we can gain some diligence by understanding this clever deceitful way that our children are being targeted. Diligence makes more sense when you realize that there are billows and waves that aim to steal your child's affection and make them unstable. That will help us to be diligent. When you understand the threat, diligence makes more sense. So it says, you shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates as you love god the commands of god should be everywhere for your children there are so what this what this does is it paints a picture of all these teachable moments where you should as the one who's called to be diligent make the most of every teachable moment As you lie down, as you rise, if you're sitting there watching something on TV that's inappropriate, make the most of the moment and explain why it's inappropriate and change the channel. Don't just let them continue to have waves crash on their little boats, making them unstable and stealing their affection. There's two application points, real simple. The first one is love God. For us to do what we're saying we're going to do at a baby dedication like this morning... You must love God. And I don't just mean, of course, yes, I'll, I say I love God. But I mean the affections. I mean, do you spend time with him? I was watching something this week where the, one of the pastors was preaching. He's saying, the, the devil laughs when we try to just do a lot of really good things, yet we have no affection for God. Because you'll never achieve that. It's never enough. You have to have affection for God. You have to want to be with him, spend time with him, spend time with his people. He doesn't allow that to be optional for the Christian. You have to love God to be steady, stand firm. Church, accountability, and the ministry of the word are not optional. You need it by his design. You were created in his image and you need this by his design. Otherwise, you'll only join your children in their confusion probably one of the most heartbreaking things. There's lots of heartbreaking things in our world, but one heartbreaking thing that you can observe is when a child or a young adult makes a terrible decision and the parent just just goes with it. Well, if that's what you want, that's what's most important. And so, I'm all in with you. If you love God rightly, you won't join into the confusion. You won't join into the the calamity that comes from false teaching. It soberly reminds us again that the battle is not just for our children's attention, but for their affections. So we should love God and help them to love God. That's application point number one. And application point number two is rebuke the wind. I want you to think in those terms. It's, 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 a, it's an illustration that just travels. When you see them confused, think, I have an opportunity right now to rebuke The wind to bring truth here, to bring some stability. Because the end goal isn't just stability. The end goal is that their affections would be turned toward God. You, as a parent, are the main disciple maker in the lives of your children. There are many churches, that some of us grew up in them, where the view is, hey, drop your children off with us. We're paid professionals. Don't try this at home. That is not our perspective here. God equipped you as parents and even as grandparents, to be main disciple-makers in the lives of your children. And at Crosspoint, we will not usurp the authority that God has given to you in that role. As a staff, we ask what we call the tie question. And anytime we have an event or a gathering or a service or, or whatever, we, we ask, how is this training, including and equipping parents to be the main disciple-makers in the lives of their children? As a church, we come alongside you. We're not doing something on a Sunday morning or on a Wednesday night because you're not doing it at home. Our hope is not to replace anything. Our hope is simply to come alongside you and rebuke the wind with you and reaffirm with your children what they've already heard from you. As a church, we put a high standard and a high level of importance on doing that with you but not taking your place. It's interesting, when the gospel is being rightly handled, it always affects at least four generations. In 2 Timothy, Paul says to Timothy, And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. It's a short verse, but it just shows that Paul in this generation tells Timothy in this generation, what you have heard from me, you take this and you entrust it to faithful men who will do the same thing and teach and preach and share and shepherd doing this ministry of the word. Four generations are always positively affected and brought, bringing more stability and more truth when the gospel is being rightly handled. Rebuke the wind. The voices of opposition have continued and will continue to roll like billows. We must take God seriously in diligently teaching our children the deeds and the commands that he has given to us. Like Paul with Timothy, we've been entrusted with something that that doesn't terminate on us. We then entrust it to others who will hopefully then entrust it to others. In doing so, we will bring stability and truth to hearts and minds. desperately need it. Let's pray.